Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And Father, that Holy One, You, the Holy One of Israel, who has always been, now is, and will always be, who has no beginning and will have no end, You are the One whose presence we approach and come before. And we should come with fear and trembling because you are a consuming fire. So Father, as we realize that, we pray that you would grip us with the weight of your character. When we stand in your presence, we should feel (laughs) as light as a feather in comparison to how weighty and substantial your glory is. And how we are like a vapor that is here today and gone tomorrow. Father, remind us that you are God and that we are not. Remind us that our days are few, that they are but a breath, that they are in your sovereign control. Father, remind us that you are in heaven and we are on earth. And remind us that the only reason we can come before you is because your Son, the Holy One, on the cross became the Holy One for us and His holiness was attributed to us so we can now come. It's our only hope. So come now and speak your word to us and show us just how desperate and dependent upon you we are. Spirit, accompany the preaching of your word and make it effectual in the heart and life of this preacher and in the heart and life of these sheep who have come to hear the voice of Jesus, the great shepherd of their souls. We ask this in his great name and for his sake. Amen. Well, on this day in history, July 10th, 1509, exactly 502 years ago, to the day, the French reformer, John Calvin was born. And a few years ago in 2009, it was his 500th, uh, the 500th anniversary of his birthday, and there were a lot of Reformed Christians out there that were making a big deal about it, and I want to continue to make a big deal about it, because I, for one, am extremely thankful to God for the life and ministry of John Calvin. Anybody else out there really excited about the fact that it's John Calvin's birthday? We should, we should get together and have a John Calvin birthday party. Wouldn't that be fun? I don't know if that borderlines on, you know, worshiping dead. Anyway, um, but one of the reasons that I am so thankful for John Calvin is because he was a man who was extremely zealous to make sure that God was properly worshipped. As a matter of fact, he spent a, a large chunk of his time, especially in the early years of his ministry, when he was first in, in Strasbourg, writing and correcting much of the liturgical practice, the way that the church practically worshipped God in their corporate worship services, and implemented changes so that it would be more biblical. Because he had seen that the Roman Catholic Church had been drawn to pomp and circumstance and ritual and and been taken away from the pure unadulterated word of God and the biblical ways in which we should worship him and so he wanted to correct that and one of the reasons that he spent so much time reforming the corporate worship of the church is because he understood how corrupt the human heart was 
And due to this heart corruption, he knew that man's tendency would be to stray from the word of God and put in its place human rules and laws and traditions. And that's exactly what we see. If you look at church history from the time of the early church to the time when the Reformation took place, you see this slow drift away from the biblical way of approaching worship. And one of my favorite quotes from John Calvin regarding worship is when he said that the human heart, by its fallen, sinful nature, is a perpetual, idol-making factory. I think that's a pretty descriptive um, way to, to describe our hearts, isn't it? Pretty accurate description, I should say. Our hearts, even as Christians, are perpetual, idol-making factories. And what's so striking about that statement is that it, it equally applies to believers as it does to unbelievers. You know, it's easy for us to point our finger at the big bad Roman Catholic Church and its idolatry, but Calvin understood that we do the exact same thing. We don't profess heretical doctrine. Oh no, our doctrine is pure. But we also don't functionally live according to the sound doctrine that we actually profess. So you see, what we do is we're just more sly in our idolatry than the Roman Catholic Church. But it's still there. It's still there. And you see, the reality is that all of life is worship. All of life. And all of life is worship because God created us to be worshipers. And since that's true, we will either worship God as the one true God or we will worship a false idol as God. You see, there's no other option. It's, it's not whether or not we will worship. It's a matter of who or what we will worship. And you see, who we worship reveals, to our, reveals what our hearts ultimately value and delight in and treasure. So let me ask you, Sovereign Grace, I've been asking myself this all week long, what are your idols? What are the idols of your hearts. Do you, do you know what they are? Are you aware of their presence in your life? And just in case you're one of those people that's sitting there thinking, Jason, I don't think I, I really have any idols in my life. Let me assure you, you do. If you are continuing to struggle with sin, and that's everybody here, right? All right, let's be humble enough to admit that. Then you still have idols in your lives. You see, while we profess to love and trust and obey God, while we profess that and intellectually assent to it, functionally at the heart level, we love and trust and obey something else. Something else entirely. And this is the very essence of the ongoing struggle between the flesh of the spirit. It's the ongoing struggle that all Christians experience in their lives. So again, I ask you, what are your idols? What are they? And just in case you have absolutely no idea, let me ask you a few questions to help you unearth them, hopefully, potentially, if the Spirit chooses to use them in this way. First question, who or what can bring you the greatest pleasure or happiness or delight? Who or what in your life can do that for you? Who or what do you want and seek to gain in your life? Who or what do you want to avoid? And so you do everything in your life to avoid it. 
Who or what do you currently have in your life that you want to keep in your life? Another way of asking it is, what are your goals or expectations for life? What are your aims and pursuits? What do you find yourself planning for? How do you spend your time and money and your talents? Where do you spend those, those gifts from God? Where do you find your identity? If people ask who you are, if I asked you to write out a, a, a resume or a description, a personal description of yourself, how would you define yourself? Well, this is my job, and I'm married, and I have a couple kids, and this, that, and the other thing. Or lastly, what are, what are the if-onlys in your life? You know, we all have these, if only I had power and influence over others. If only I had love and respect from this person. If only I had a certain quality of life or this kind of pleasurable experience. If only I had mastery over this area of my life. If only I had a better relationship with my kids or spouse or family or friends or coworkers. If only I was smarter. If only I was better looking. If only I knew the Bible more proficiently. If only I could conquer this sin. See, if we're honest with ourselves, as much as we love the Lord, we all still have idols in our lives. We all still have functional gods that we run to in our lives instead of running to the one true God. And you see, how we act reveals what we value and thus what we worship. And so at any given time, we're either worshiping God or we're worshiping an idol. It's one or the other. There's no other option. Now, if that's true, then the question that naturally follows is, Well, how do we turn away from worshiping these false idols in our lives and instead worship the one true God? How do we do that? And I think there are two things, two very important things. There's more than this in the Bible, but at the very least, there's two things that the Bible tells us to do. First, we have to realize and rejoice in the truth that Jesus worshiped God perfectly in our place. We have to realize that Jesus' perfect track record of worship is now given to us, accredited as ours, and our sinful track record of worship was given to Jesus on the cross, and he was punished for our sin in our place. You see, only the gospel can give us the freedom to turn to God and away from our idols, knowing that we are already loved and accepted by the Father for Jesus' sake based on Jesus' performance, not our own. And listen, let me tell you this. If you don't know that freedom in the gospel, you're either going to run away from God or you're going to slave away in religion trying to earn his favor. You're either going to do one of those two things. Only the gospel frees us to be honest about our idolatry on the one hand and on the other hand, run to the arms of our Father. Secondly, we have to ask God to change our hearts to worship him alone. We, can't, we, not, we don't just rejoice in the gospel and the acceptance it brings us because of what Jesus has done. We also have to ask God to change our hearts to worship him alone. Because the truth is, we can't change our own hearts, can we? You don't have to be a Christian long to realize that. So we have to ask God to do it. 
And as I was thinking about this this week, I ran across a quote from Sinclair Ferguson, and I love what he says about this. Let me quote this for you directly. He says, The foundation of worship in the heart is not emotional. I feel full of worship. Or the atmosphere is so worshipful. Worship is not something that we work up. It is something that comes down to us from the character of God. It is God who gives us the spirit of worship. And while we see this truth all throughout the Bible, let me just give you one example. And you don't have to turn there, but you can write this down and maybe look at it later. Psalm 133 shows us this very truth. It teaches us about what we can expect God to do in our midst when we gather together as his people to worship him. And the psalmist uses two word pictures to describe what God does when we gather together like this. The first word picture he uses is of oil that was poured on a priest or a king for anointing for service. Do you remember, you you see this happen with certain kings throughout the Old Testament through priests when they were called by God the prophet of God would take this oil and pour it over their heads and it would just drench them, drench their hair, their beard, their robes. And the second picture that he uses is this picture of the dew that would come and cover Mount Hermon. And in the word picture, rather than covering Mount Hermon, it's coming down to Jerusalem. And you see, the reason he uses these two word pictures is to show us that God is the one who sends the oil and God is the one who sends the dew. These things come from God. And in the same way, God is the one who sends his spirit to come down to our spirits and changes them so that we worship God. God's the one who anoints his priests. God's the one who sends the dew to sustain the natural world. And God is the one who drenches his people with a spirit of worship and changes their hearts so that they want to worship him. And we have to realize that and rejoice in it. Now if that's true, if it's true that only God can turn our hearts to worship them, then how should we respond to that? Should we respond by sitting down and folding our arms and saying, well, I'm going to wait for God to change my heart, wait for him to give me the spirit of worship, and then I'll, I'll get to business. Then I'll start to obey him. No, we obey him now expectantly waiting for him to come and change us. We obey him now, patiently praying for him to draw us to himself. You see why we can't create the change. We can position ourselves to receive the change. You see, to use a crude example, and this is Southern California, so I can get away with this, but the Christian life is a lot like surfing. You think about the surfer. He drives out to the ocean, and then he paddles out, you know, as far as he needs to, to to be in the surf. And then he sits there and he waits for the wave to come so that he can experience the thrill of riding it all the way to the shore, right? That's what a surfer does. But guess what? Can he control the waves? Can he control the tides? Can he control when they're going to come and when they're not going to be there? No. But here's what he can do. When they come, he's ready and he knows what to do because he's practiced, he's studied, He's been listening to the surfing report and knows where he needs to go to get the best surf. And that's exactly how we need to position ourselves as we wait for the Lord to change us. 
So then the question after that becomes, how are we to prepare ourselves so that when the wave of the Lord's grace inevitably comes, we can skillfully ride upon it? You'll have to excuse the cheesy example, but how do we do that? In other words, how are we to skillfully worship the Lord? How do we skillfully worship him? And that's the, the very question that the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants to answer for us this morning. And the preacher gives us three ways to skillfully worship God. Three ways to skillfully worship God. First, through consistent corporate worship. Second, through receiving God's word. And third, through keeping your vows. So through consistent corporate worship, through receiving God's word, and through keeping your vows. So first, let's see how we are to worship skillfully through consistent corporate worship. Through consistent corporate worship. Look at the first half of verse 1 with me in in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now the first thing I want to point out to you about this verse is something that we completely miss in our English translations. And here's what we miss. In Hebrew... The word that is translated go, go to the house of God, employs a verb form of habitual meaning. That is, it refers to an action that is repeated regularly. So essentially, the force of this sentence in Hebrew is that going to the house of God should be something that is a regular, habitual part of our lives. And the reason I bring that to our attention is because I think it's important for us to be reminded that the biblical expectation is that Christians will regularly attend corporate worship. That's the expectation. And that's not very popular these days, is it? But the truth is we see this all throughout Scripture. We do. Just one example would be Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 39 It's right at the end of when the people are sealing this covenant to the Lord. And the very last thing they say is, literally the very last phrase in this whole sealing of the covenant is, we will not neglect the house of God. You see, as they were renewing the covenant with the Lord, they committed themselves to regularly worshiping together with God's people. It wasn't optional for them. It was something that God had called them to do. And the reason they knew that is because, guess what? It made the top ten. It made it in the Ten Commandments. What's the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so they knew this, and so they committed themselves to it. So let me ask you, Sovereign Grace, have you committed yourself to not neglecting the house of God? Are you committed to attending corporate worship on Sundays on a regular basis? Have you made that commitment? Have you made that commitment either as an individual or have you made that commitment for your family? As for me and my house, we're gonna fear the Lord. We're gonna go and worship with his people. And let me just admonish you, if you haven't, you should. Because if you don't, here's what'll happen. And I talk to people, this is what happens for them. They'll wake up on Sunday mornings and think to themselves, oh, what what do I wanna do today? Oh, there's so many things I could do today. And I'm really tired from last night. You know, I stayed up way too late and now I just don't have any energy and I'd kind of like to just sleep in and then do whatever I want the rest of the day. And so if you do what your desires are, chances are you're not gonna come to church. It's just the truth. But if you're committed to not neglecting the house of God, that internal conversation about what I wanna do today isn't even going to happen. 
Instead, what you're going to say to yourself is, this is the Lord's day. Worshiping with his people is not optional for me. I need to worship with God's people. And not only do I need to meet with other Christians, even more importantly, I need to meet with God. And one of my favorite psalms is about this very thing. Because one of the main reasons we should want to come worship on Sunday morning is to worship God and be close to him in a very extraordinary way that happens in, in corporate worship. And here's what my favorite psalm says about this. It's Psalms 84, verses 1 through 4 and verse 10. The psalmist says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And I wonder, Sovereign Grace, does that express your heart for God's presence and God's people? Does your soul even long and even faint throughout the week just to be here with God and his people? Because that's the biblical expectation. The biblical expectation is when God saves us, when he redeems us, we want to worship regularly with him and with his people. And you know what, if that shocks you, because culturally it probably does, and makes you feel guilty because that's not the desire of your heart, then you need to realize two things. First of all, Jesus had a perfect zeal for the house of God. And there are multiple places. You see this all throughout Jesus' life. But just one example is when Jesus drives the money changers out of the temple. Do you remember when that happened? The, the place I'm referring to is in the Gospel of John. It happens, in, happens twice in John, actually, a couple other places throughout the Gospels. But right after Jesus does it the first time in the Gospel of John, the Gospel writer says his disciples remembered that it was written, and then he, he quotes a psalm, zeal for your house will consume me. And what the disciples realized is they were seeing that perfectly displayed for them in Jesus Jesus was displaying perfect biblical zeal for the house of God and he was consumed by it that God would be rightly uh, worshipped among his people. And what you have to realize in order to be free to commit yourself to regularly attending worship is that Jesus has done that perfectly in your place so that Jesus is now your Sabbath rest. Jesus is your Sabbath rest. So the first thing you have to do is rest in his perfect zeal for God's house on your behalf. The second thing that you have to do is cry out to God to give you a heart that is consumed with zeal for the house of God. John Calvin was famous for frequently praying, Lord, I give you my heart promptly and sincerely. And that should be our prayer as well. Lord, I give you my heart. Take it and may I be consumed by zeal for your house even as Jesus was. So if you haven't done that before, do that right now. Say, Father, come. 
I rest in Jesus' perfect zeal for the house of God on my behalf, and I want you to come and make me a man or a woman of God who is consumed with zeal for your house and for your people. Because you see, brothers and sisters, I guarantee you, God is more ready to answer that prayer than we are to ask it of him. So humble yourselves and ask him to fill you with that zeal. So we've seen that we are to worship skillfully through consistent corporate worship. Secondly, let's look at how we are to worship skillfully through receiving God's word, through receiving God's word. Look at the second half of verse 1 and then verses 2 through 3 with me. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not even know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Now, I don't know if this has been your experience, but one of the questions I'm most frequently asked by unbelievers is, why do you Christians make such a big deal about the Bible? As a matter of fact, some unbelievers, I don't know if you've ever received this charge, but I have, some unbelievers accuse me, and even other Christians have accused me, of being a person that worships the Bible. But just to set the record straight, the reason we make such a big deal about the Bible as a church isn't because we worship it, but because it is the self-revelation of the God whom we worship. You see, if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you'll see that God created us to be revelation receivers. Even before the fall, we needed God to give us revelation so that we could make sense of the world around us. Because by our very nature as creatures, we are dependent upon God to understand and know the truth. We were never meant to know and discover and understand the truth on our own apart from God. Truth is to be received relationally, in relation with God. See, he has to come down and reveal these things to us, otherwise they remain hidden and unknown. And the way he's chosen to reveal those things to us is how? It's through his word. It's through this book. So the reason we treasure the Bible isn't because we worship it, but because it is the self-revelation of the God whom we worship. And since we love him, we love his self-revelation. And you see, that's the whole theological backdrop for what the preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us here in verses one through three. The reason we should draw near to listen and not be rash with our mouths and not let our hearts be hasty to utter a word before God and let our words be few is because God is in heaven and we are on earth. He is the creator and we are his creatures. That's why we need to shut our mouths and silence our hearts to listen to his word. We need to be still and know that he is God. But you know, the reason that we have such a hard time with this is because we live our lives like we're God. We live our lives like we're God, and so we're consumed with our thoughts and constantly spewing out our words And what this text is telling us is that when we live and worship that way, we're fools. We're fools. 
We're fools when we don't carefully weigh our thoughts and words against God's thoughts and words. See, for most of us, and myself included, I'm, I'm pleading the fifth here, when we come to corporate worship, we offer the sacrifice of fools. We're guilty of that. We don't come to listen and receive God's word. We come to sit in judgment of how it is presented to us, whether or not it met our needs, whether or not it met our aesthetic standards, whether or not it stimulated us intellectually. See, we come with no intention of submitting and obeying the word of God. We come to critique it, to sit in judgment of it, rather than let it sit in judgment of us. Or when some of us come, we are so incapable of quieting our own thoughts and words that we don't even hear the word of God. We think that by simply being here, going through the ritual, we are somehow pleasing God and earning his favor without listening and then doing his word. But brothers and sisters, hear me. When we come to God's house in such a thoughtless manner, we deflect the wisdom of God and we remain in our foolish stupor. And don't you see that that's sin against God? It's sin against our creator who is in heaven from his creatures who are here on earth. It's sin that needs to be repented of. And the only way we can do that, again, I'm gonna hammer this into your hearts today, is if we realize two things. First of all, Jesus was not only the very word of God, but he also perfectly received the word of God. You see, where you and I fail every week to perfectly receive God's word, Jesus succeeded we see this all throughout the Gospels again, but let me just point out one place to you. John 5, 19, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. You see, Jesus perfectly received and obeyed the word of God. And he did that in your place. He did that in my place. And we need to rest in that and rejoice in that. And the second thing we need to realize is that since we can't change our own hearts, we need to cry out for the Father to do so. We need to cry out for him to send his spirit to soften our hearts so that just as fresh-tilled soil readily accepts the planter's seed, so too will our broken hearts receive the seed of God's word as he plants it. So we've seen that we are to worship skillfully through consistent corporate worship, through receiving God's word. And thirdly, let's look at how we are to worship skillfully through keeping our vows. Through keeping our vows. Look at verses four through seven with me. When you vow a vow to God... Do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity." But God is the one you must fear. Now, if I had to make a guess, my guess would be that of the three points that we're covering today, this is probably the one that you're most curious about. 
We need to keep our vows? What does that even mean? Because we're all familiar with marriage vows, but what is a vow that is made to God? What is that? That's not language that we're used to these days. But essentially, a vow that is made to God is a promise that is made to God. It's a promise. And in context, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying that it's better to not make a vow than to make a vow if you're not sure if you can't, if you can't fulfill it. It's better to not make it if you're not sure if you can fulfill it than it is to just blindly make one. And here are two reasons why it's better to not vow than to vow. The first reason is because in the preacher's day, if you made a vow and couldn't keep it, you had to confess it before the priest as sin and as a mistake. And that would be embarrassing. So you don't want to do that. But the second reason he gives is because in the preacher's day, vows were accompanied by oaths. And an oath is an act by which you call upon God to curse you if you fail to carry out your vow. So the second reason to not vow is because you will incur the wrath of God for not fulfilling it, and he will destroy the work of your hands. And that's serious business. Now, in our day and age, when we make a vow, we don't have to swear an oath, right? And when we break our vows before God, we don't have to confess them to a priest. Perhaps there's a few exceptions to you know, swearing an oath when we make a vow, but by and large, we don't. But if a vow is essentially a promise that we make to God, then we still make vows to him today, don't we? We still make promises to God. Uh, for example, I remember when I was in junior high at Stockdale Christian School, uh, they had this guy, uh, speaker from True Love Waits come in and speak to us guys about, um, about purity, remaining pure for our wives until we got married. And to be completely honest with you, it's probably one of the most awkward presentations I can remember off the top of my head as a young man. This guy was using weird analogies that were kind of creeping me out. But I'll tell you what, the one thing that stuck with me, I don't know why, as silly as it may sound, I, I remember thinking, man, God takes this really seriously. And I don't, remember, I don't know why, I'd heard that my whole life from my parents, but all of a sudden hearing it from someone else, it clicked with me. And they make you sign these pledge cards, you know, I promise to keep myself pure for my wife, you know, until I get married. And I remember how seriously I took signing that card. And I realized that it was, I'm not just doing this to myself, I'm not just saying this, making a promise to myself, I'm making this promise to God, this is serious business, as silly as it sounds, I remember taking it that seriously. That's an example of making a promise or a vow to God. And the reality is, now by God's grace, I kept that vow until my wedding day. That's only by his grace. But there are also plenty of promises I've made to God that I haven't fulfilled. And what I've had to grapple with this past week as I've prepared this sermon is realizing that those are vows that I've broken to God. Serious stuff. I take it so glibly and so lightly. Oh, his grace is going to cover it. It's no big deal. You know, I can just throw promises around and vows around like it's, it's nobody's business. But it's a sin against God. And I'm sure you, you, this is your experience as well. Think about your own life. Have you ever bartered with God that if he just got you through some painful situation in your life, then you'd, per, then you'd completely forsake some particular sin? You ever done that? And then what happened? God delivered you from the difficult situation, and then you went right back to your sin, didn't you? And the only reason I know that you've done that is because I've done that as well. We've all done that. 
Or have you ever sat in a worship service like today and felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you said to yourself, today is the day that I'm going to confess this sin to a trustworthy Christian. I'm going to confess it and get help. I'm going to do it. And the worship songs are going on and on. And then the service ends and the benediction is read. And then what happens? Eh, we change our mind. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to leave the service. I'm not going to think about it. Just, I'll go at it my own. I, I've, I've promised that I'm going to try harder on my own. And then we, we break that promise so lightly. Don't take it seriously. You see, these are all vows, promises that we make to God and then don't keep. And the preacher wants us to realize that it's sin. And so his advice to us is to not make promises to God if we can't fulfill them. And we all find ourselves guilty here today, don't we? I know I do, so what do we do? How do we respond? And again, I'm going to pound it into you. Two things. First, we have to realize and rejoice in the truth that God is the perfect promise keeper. You could say the whole story of the Bible is God's faithfulness to his promise in keeping his promises to his people. Do you remember in Genesis 15? When God swore that he would fulfill his promise to Abraham and his offspring, even if it meant that God would have to be torn apart in order to do so. Remember Abraham took the animals and ripped them apart and then God walked through the middle of it in essence saying, may this be done to me. What you've done to the animals, may that be done to me if I don't keep my end of this promise. And what we have to realize is that God kept that promise when he sent Jesus to be torn apart for us on the cross. You see, as Abraham's offspring, we had failed to keep our end of the promise. So Jesus had to come and keep the promise perfectly in our place and then be torn apart on the cross because we deserve to be torn apart on the cross. And then what we have to realize is that our failure to keep our promises has been paid by Jesus on the cross. And his, his perfect life of promise keeping is now given to us, counted as our own. And I hope you realize that that is your only hope for ever committing yourself to keeping your promises in the future. Is if you have the freedom of knowing Jesus has done it perfectly in your place. Otherwise, you're just going to despair. And secondly, again, we need to cry out to God to change our hearts so that we long to be a promise-keeping people even as he as a, is a promise-keeping God. And it's only as we seek his face and beseech him to change us that we ourselves would be made more and more into the image of Jesus in this way so that we can be a promise-keeping people. You see, brothers and sisters, the only hope we have for turning away from our idol worship and turning to the worship of the one true living God is if he changes our hearts so that we value the creator more than the creation. And the good news this morning is that we have a substitute, Jesus the Christ, who is perfectly worshipped in our place and died for our failures to worship perfectly so that we can now be a people who are learning to worship to an ever greater degree with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And it's my prayer for all of us that God would be pleased to change us from one degree of glory to the next so that our hearts 
can sing together that old hymn, More love to Thee, O Christ. More love to Thee. Hear Thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to Thee. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now Thee alone I seek. Give what is best. This all my prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to Thee. Then shall my latest breath whisper Thy praise. This be the parting cry my heart shall raise. This still its prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to Thee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by the truth that You have created us as worshipers who were intended to worship You. And yet, Father, we have turned, we have strayed, we have rebelled. In essence, Father, we're either going to worship You or we're going to worship ourselves. And we confess that while we profess to worship You and believe in You and love You and trust You and obey You, in reality, functionally, day to day, we love and trust and obey ourselves. And Lord, we confess that as sin and we want to abandon it. We want to abandon it and commit ourselves to consistent corporate worship knowing that Jesus had a perfect zeal for the house of God in our place. So Father, come change our hearts so we're a people who are zealous for your house as well. And we confess, Lord, that we are not a people who receive your word humbly, but rather we are filled with our own thoughts, with our own words. And so that's why we're thankful that Jesus came, not only as the word of God, but perfectly submitted himself to your word, Father, in our place and died on the cross for all the, the ways that we fell short. And so we ask that you would come and make us a people who rejoice in your word, who love your word, because we love you so much and need your revelation to know the truth and make sense of this life and relate with you. And Father, we also confess that we are continually breaking our vows to you and, oh Lord, so often to each other as well. But that's why we rejoice that you are a promise-keeping God who's been faithful to your promises, faithful to your covenant, faithful to redeem us and send your Son to be torn apart in our place for all of our promise breaking. And Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit to now make us a people who keep, your, who keep our promises, the promises that you even command us to keep, such as professing your name before all men and not denying the name of Jesus. Father, we're thankful that you have provided all these things for us in the gospel, and that's our rest. We pray that you would come and make us a people who are zealous for your house, who are zealous for your word, and who are zealous to keep our word as well. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his great and glorious sake. Amen.